Welcome to the Public Rally. Seven seasons and 299 episodes ago, I needed a guest for the new show we were launching at WSNC Radio called The Public Morality. I sent out an initial email and that guest responded in the affirmative in less than an hour. That guest was nationally acclaimed broadcast journalist and author Tavis Smiley. It seemed only proper that he return for our 300th episode. Tavis Smiley, welcome back to the Public Morality, sir. Great honor to be with you, Byron. How are you, sir? It is a good day to be alive, my friend. You know, 299 shows ago, um, you stated that uh, the title of Martin Luther King's last sermon, which he did not preach because he was assassinated, was Why America May Go to Hell. Using King's sermon title, as a backdrop, except, assess present-day America for us, please. Yeah, had King made it back to Ebenezer uh, from Ebenezer in Atlanta, his church, of course, that he co-passed with his father, Daddy King, had he made it back to Atlanta from Memphis after that march, that scheduled march, his sermon was going to be entitled Why America May Go to Hell. And he wasn't signing America to hell, he wasn't condemning America to hell, but he was saying that the, the triple threat of racism, poverty, and military, then America may go to hell. Uh, and if you fast forward to answer your question, all these years later, we just celebrated the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Factors underscore the fact that black folk are still the most hated people in this country. No question about that. Still, 60 years after the March on Washington. Um, but King was saying that America may go to hell if we don't get serious about this triple threat. So you fast forward to 2023, and what are the things that still threaten our very democracy? Racism, poverty, and militarism. We could add to that uh, environmental hazards, environmental uh, global warming, a number of things to that list that I think uh, are threatening our very democracy. But that core are as real as rain, even in 2023. You know, I was struck uh, when all of the uh, presidential, um, Republican presidential candidates at the recent debate, except for Asa Hutchinson, said they would support the former president even if he was convicted in a court of law and emerged as the party's nominee. I, I, I know there's an old adage that, that you have to appeal to the base and then you move to the center. Um, how can you get to the center if you, if you stake positions like that? One, they're not, they're not interested in moving to the center. Uh, they, they're only interested in playing to that rabid base. Um, and I might add to your analysis, they don't want to critique Donald Trump because to critique Donald Trump uh, would, in fact, sins uh, a good portion of that base. They'd have no chance of winning the nomination. So they're, 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 they're in an awkward situation. They, they, they don't have capacity to be truth tellers. And to the extent tell some truths, like and a couple of here and there, um, they run the risk of, of the wrath of incurring, they run the risk of incurring the wrath of that Trump debate. So there's no truth, frankly, that's being told by any of these Republicans that that debate or any other debate they are, they are, they are going to have. And it, it really was, to your point, it was telling, it was beyond telling that they would still support Donald Trump as their nominee. Um, uh, America, again, back to King's message that America 
why America fell. If, if that isn't uh, some additional data uh, that supports that we're going to hell, um, if we trajectory stay on this path, then I don't know what. It um, let's move over uh, to the Democratic Party. Um, assess their challenges that, that that confront them, if you would. Well, the Democrats have an enthusiasm problem. There's there's, there's an enthusiasm gap. I literally just discussed this on my program earlier today. This enthusiasm gap that exists. There's a big story out um, as we sit for this conversation in today's New York Times. Uh, it turns out that the racial equity, as he, that's, what he, that's the phrase he used repeatedly, this ra- racial equity agenda that Biden promised for black people, voting rights and student loans and police reform, et cetera, uh, that racial equity agenda he really did not deliver on. Now, uh, some of this, I think, has to do with, with some malaise not being aggressive enough, not being enough. Some of it has to do with systems and structures uh, and uh, the fight he received from uh, not just Republicans, but from, from Democrats like Cinema and Manchin, who kept him from getting some of these agenda items passed. That said, he has not delivered for black people in the way that he has delivered for black people symbolically. It's hard to argue that symbolically, um, he hasn't done a good job. I mean, you've got a, a running mate, a vice president, Kamala Harris, a black woman. You've got Kate J, Tanji Brown Jack, court. You've got an African American who's our U.S. ambassador, uh, Michelle Cook now on the Fed. I mean, uh, there are a number. Secretary of, of Defense, yeah. <laughs> there are a number of historic firsts um, that the president ushered in, and you, you can't hate on that. Um, but a lot of that is, is symbolic, substantively, um, politically, public policy wise. Um, in this racial equity agenda that he promised to deliver on, uh, he has not yet delivered. I was just uh, reading before I came on about a commitment that Joe Biden made to get rid of private prisons. Um, he's sort of done a U-turn. We know these private prisons warehouse black women. So there are a number of things he promised that he did a 180 on. There are other things like he promised that he has not delivered on. So there is, there is yeah, yeah. And I mean, beyond black folk, every poll study, Byron, that I've read suggests that nobody wants to see a rematch. Nobody wants to see part two, the sequel to Biden v. Trump. Nobody wants to see that. So there is an enthusiasm gap on the left. Answer your question about the Democrats. They got a they got enthusiasm problem. And on the right, Donald Trump is raising money like nobody's business. You saw that he raised immediately after he put stuff in in Georgia. Shows up in Georgia, takes that up shop, and within a couple of days, he's raised an additional million dollars. So he raised Rabbit, and most of that are small donor dollars. That's a whole nother issue that they're small donor dollars. That makes a serious uh, and and damning statement for the challenges that the left, that Democrats rather, are going to have in this campaign. So I'm hearing I'm hearing you say that um, uh, uh, Biden Trump does not rise to the level of Ali Frazier. Is what I'm hearing you say. Uh, Great metaphor. Um, I, I use the same thing. I did the same thing on my show. So we are, we're, we're simpatico on this. Uh, I box as a workout. I love to box. I'm a pugilist. I, I love being in the ring and it's a great work. Uh, and I've, I've been a boxing fan for years. And most times, most times in the world of boxing, rematch, don't measure. Everybody wants to rematch, but very these rematches measure up uh, because the winner does the same thing in the second fight that he did in the first fight. And even if it's a closer fight or a better fight, it doesn't, you know, the, the outcome isn't the big fight, most Errol Spence and Jamal Crawford. 
I mean, Crawford, he jabbed Errol Spence to death. He didn't stab him to death. He jabbed him to death. And everybody's talking rematch. What is Earl Spence going to do differently in this second fight? I mean, Jamal Crawford just dismantled him methodically. As is true in boxing, as is true in politics, rematches oftentimes don't measure up. When you when you mentioned that that Crawford fight, you know, it, it it's it's hard uh, to beat someone when you're more worried about taking body shots <laughs> and covering up your ribs. And so uh, I, I certainly take your point. Um, what about Biden's age? Is how, how big of a factor is that in your view? Well, to the extent you've got two old white guys running against each other, my sense is that ultimately age, uh, the age factor is going is to be, the fact that they're both old and white, age is going to cancel each other out. So if he were, if, if Biden were running against a 35 year old or Trump were running against a 35 year old, maybe a different conversation. Yeah. You know, earlier you mentioned um, the March on Washington 60 years ago, um, very, very different climate in the 60s. But when I hear critical race theory used by its opponents in the 1619 project and and wokeism, I'm wondering, in your view, is this repackaging the Southern strategy for a 21st century audience? No question. I could not concur. I could not agree more. Um, it's stale, um, but it's a repackaging of what happened. Um, last weekend happened to be the annual Emmett Till anniversary weekend in the state of Mississippi. So... Um, I, I met him there and we spent days together moving around the state at a variety um, legacy of but impactful, short lived but impactful legacy of Emmett Till. And he and I were, were discussing um, Ronald Reagan, who, as you recall, had been the two term governor of California, but went all the way from California to Mississippi, specifically Philadelphia, Mississippi, where they murdered Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney mm-hmm. to announce race for the White House. Now, why is a two-term governor of California anywhere near Mississippi to announce his president uh, and why in Philadelphia? Well, we know why. He wanted to, uh, he was sending a, a, a out to states' rights. Um, so we know why Ronald Reagan did that. And so Dr. West wanted to go back to Mississippi over this particular weekend uh, as a part of his campaign journey to sort of set the uh, all these decades later. So we had a lot of we had, we had a great deal of dynamic uh, conversation over the weekend about the repackaging, if you will, of this of this Southern strategy. Exactly what it is. It's old, stale. The question is, will it work? It is old and it's stale. Will it work? The jury, the jury's, the jury is still out. It remains to be. Seen. It's, mm. it's an open question. You know, it's just staying, staying on that thread. It, you know, is there, in your view? a naivete about America when it comes to racism uh, in that America sort of makes, say, George Wallace or Bull Connor or any behavior like that, the bar. So anything that doesn't raise to that bar um, in the dominant culture's view is not racism. How do you see that, sir? One, uh, it's a it's a brilliant question. Uh, I wouldn't call it a naivete. Uh, America knows better. Uh, in many respects, America, you know, we, we, America knows better, number one. Moreover, we've grown older, but we've not grown wiser. America has grown older, but we've not grown up. Uh, so it's, it's, it, I wouldn't call it a naivete. It's willful. It is intentional. It is ignorant. 
It is strategic. It's all those things, but it's not naive. Uh, America absolutely understands, uh, as I intimated earlier, that racism is still the most intractable issue in this country. Uh, don't you know? Even years after the March on Washington, it's not something that we still want to come to terms with. Um, to the notion that if it doesn't rise to the level of George Wallace or Bull Connor, that it's not really racist. Well, one could argue in many respects uh, and banning uh, African-American AP courses when you are making it easier uh, and easier and easier to get guns. Um, you know, when you are raising money, as Ron DeSantis and other Republicans did to defend this white boy who killed the brother on the subway in New York City. Uh, and you're calling him a good Samaritan for killing this black, this unarmed black man. He's being called a good Samaritan by DeSantis and other Republicans. And they're raising money for his legal defense fund. I mean, I could go. I, we don't have enough time to run the list. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, but it's hard to argue that at this point it's a naivete. As I said, it's willful. It's ignorant. It's racist. It's strategic. It's anything but naive. And again, we move. A beyond in many respects, one could argue Wallace and Bull Connor. I mean, we don't we don't see the police dogs, um, but politically, um, we're, we're we're so much uh, things are so much uglier and nastier. When we ought to be more enlightened, things are uglier and nastier. Um, you mentioned earlier 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, which is also the um, what the anniversary of Emmett Till, the same day. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedoms. Um, you know, when you look back, just just in the short time from when the Public Radio did its first show with you as our guest till 300 episodes later, just just stay there. I, I want to actually do the whole um, uh, historical narrative, but just if you just look at that, talk about the importance of the March on Washington within the American narrative six decades later. It's a it's a it's a benchmark to be to be sure it's a benchmark, not just a benchmark but a high water mark. Um, it is, I think, still the greatest demonstration for freedom in, in the history of this republic. And even if one wants to argue me on that, uh, the difference between this current iteration of a social justice movement and the one we're talking about six years ago is major housing legislation has passed. Um, so there was some, there, 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 there was, again, um, in this country that came out of that march on Washington. Uh, we've not seen any of that uh, come out of this, this moment of uh, racial reckoning, as it were, for the nation. So the protests were real. Um, all these corporations made all kinds of promises to do better. Most of them lied. Those who did lie are now doing a 180 on the commitment statement uh, to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we still don't have voting rights legislation passed. There's no police reform legislation passed. Biden has to use executive order to do what he could do, but there's no bill passed. So it's it's hard to argue um, that Washington, Washington back in three was not more impactful than what we are experiencing in real time. And so that's the frame. That, that I understand that protests matter, no question about it. Uh, marches, I think, still matter, no question about it. Um, but ultimately, the question has to be addressed 
what came of it? What came of it? Uh, movements in our country are very rare. I like to say, I like to say rather, you start with a moment. I call it the three M's. You start with the moment. That moment, uh, if you're fortunate, it builds momentum. And that momentum turns into a movement. Moment, momentum, and movement. But when that movement reaches its apex, um, one has to look back at it and see what came of it. And in this moment, there's just no real legislation we can point to, no real movement uh, when it comes to public policy that we can point to. And that's the part that's most disturbing for me. Hmm. As you know, I was 10 years ago now, I, I wrote, because you wrote a wonderful blurb for my book on 1963. Uh, and I argued in that book that the three protagonists were George Wallace, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, that any of the events that I talked about, one of those three and sometimes all three were involved. From the standpoint, and here's the operative word, from the standpoint of influence, which of the three, King, Kennedy, or Wallace, in your view, has been the most influential on present-day America? Question, MLK. Um, I regard Dr. King, as you probably heard me say before, I regard Dr. King as the greatest American this country has ever Um, If I were going to debate you on someone, the other two obviously wouldn't even be on the list. Certainly not George Wallace. With all due respect to President Kennedy, he wouldn't be on the list. Um, I could debate you, again, if we're talking about the greatest American we've ever produced, I could debate you on Abraham Lincoln, given what he did to save the U.S. Uh, I might make a debate on FDR, given what he did with the deal to save the country. Um, I, I once had a very spirited debate with my friend Killer Mike. I love Killer Mike. Uh, amazing artist, rapper, entrepreneur. Killer Mike and I had a we, we had a tete-a-tete -tete one day on my radio program uh, about uh, MLK versus Frederick Douglass. He went, he went hard in the paint uh, to use a sports <laughs> Frederick Douglass, and it was the I, I tell you, it's the most spirited debate I've ever had about why King is not the greatest American we've ever produced. And Killer Mike is from Atlanta. Dr. King is his guy. That's his home. That's his homeboy. That's his hometown, Atlanta. But he 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 argued me uh, to the wall uh, on Frederick Douglass, and then once late great Dick argued me on John Brown. I had him okay. He had John Brown. I said, Dick, you cannot be serious. But <laughs> John Brown. But Dick argued for John Brown, uh, Killer Mike argued for Freddie Douglas. I still have Dr. King as the greatest American this country's ever produced. So there's no question in my mind of the three that you've just listed, Wallace, Kennedy, and King, um, King hands down. Um, I had a feeling you were going to, that, that that was going to be your answer. Cause it would be my answer too. all things being said. It would be my answer. So I'd have been right. I'd have had your back on the Killer Mike conversation as well as Dick Gregory. I'd have had your back on both. Now, second part of that question when you talk about behavior in the present moment, who is the most influential? Uh, unpack that for me. You say behavior. What do you mean by that? Behavior. When you look at American political discourse today, are you seeing us more in the Martin Luther King motif? Are you seeing us in a John F. Kennedy motif? Or are you seeing us in a George Wallace motif? George Wallace wins that one. <laughs> uh, if you talk about um, this country is in retrenchment. Our democracy is fragile. 
uh, to quote Atlantic Star, it's a fragile situation fall apart at any time. Uh, <laughs> that, that, our hearts ain't in it. Um, we're on the precipice. There's so many things that threaten this very democracy, as I call it, an experiment in democracy. I don't believe that we are as yet a democracy. We are an experiment in democracy. We have a we have a Madisonian framework for democracy, but we're, we're not we're not fully in that frame. So we are still, as I see it, an experiment in democracy, if not an oligarchy or a plutocracy already. Um, but in that in that regard, you have uh, America now uh, in a very reactionary moment. The, the question is still, who are we really? Who are we really? Not the ideals, the I-D-E-A-L-S that we profess, but the kind of insane ideas that are being put forth and embraced, quite frankly, in this American reactionary moment. So if the question is who, who is most influencing the, the current present behavior of too many fellow citizens, George Wallace wins that one, even though writ large, King has been more influential, I think, on the Right. But you, you, you make it sound like it's, uh, you know, it, uh, what, what was that, Nixon McGovern, 49 states to one, something like that? <laughs> the jury is still out. We, 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 we shall see. Um, as you well, no, um, the Electoral College is the ultimate, you know, that, that is the ultimate. Um, you win the Electoral College, you become president. Um, but the popular vote has makes a, makes a different statement. And last time around, when he lost, you had 70 plus million votes from fellow citizens. That's disturbing, man. It's a disturbing, disturbing trend. And I, I fear, I, I shudder to think about where this democracy ends up a few years from now if we see the return of, of Donald Trump. Well, on, on on that thread, well, here we are, sixty years since the March on Washington, fifty-eight years since uh, the Voting Rights Act was passed, and we we know the pushback there. Uh, Forty-nine years since Roe v. Wade was uh, uh, affirmed by the Supreme Court. It feels to me, and I don't want to sound like I'm just blaming Republicans for this. My observation is between right-wing pushback and neoliberalism. We're trying to moonwalk our way into the next decade. How do you see it, sir? I think you're right. Uh, I'm laughing, Byron, because as we sit for this conversation, today would be, alive, the 65th birthday of Michael Joseph Jackson. Um, so for you to use that that phrase, that word moonwalk, um, um, everybody who knows, remembers the moonwalk, you see Michael riding backward ever so smoothly, one Foot at a time, and that is uh, a perfect description. It seems to me, as I think about it, of what America we are sliding backwards, ever so gently, ever so smoothly, one foot at a time. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where this ends. Uh, but you're right. We're caught. We're caught with. Uh, and I go back to. I go back to my friend Cornell. Uh, we we talked a lot lately about his. About and at one point he said to me that his campaign is really an act of desperation. Um, he's not running because um, he necessarily thinks he's the best or the brightest or has all the answers, but it really is an act of desperation. What he means 
we are in a moment right now where nobody wants to tell the truth. America is becoming more and more. Joe Biden used that F word, fascism, and he used that F word one time, and they obliterated him. They slapped him upside the head so hard he can't use the game. But in that moment, he told the truth. Nobody wants to tell the truth about our current situation. If nobody wants to speak uh, the truth, then the suffering um, of everyday people gets rendered invisible. Um, we have to get the frame right. We have, we're having all these conversations, but we're talking in the wrong frame. America is in a fascist frame right now. And somebody has to be willing to say that. Um, and if we don't have somebody that's willing to speak the truth, to we're going to end up, uh, um, we're, I think, I think in many respects, we're already on the, we're already in the, on, on the dark side. We're on the dark side of this democracy. And unless somebody is willing to speak some real truths, we're in trouble. And so got Biden on standard bear for the Democrats and the nominee for Republicans is Donald Trump. And in that frame, only so much truth is being told. Uh, that's what scares me about our democracy and not confront uh, what we're up against. If people aren't willing to tell the truth and I get sick of this lie year in and year out, Donald Trump said it for four years. Biden's now said it for three years. That the state of our union is strong. No, it is not. <laughs> Somebody's got to tell the truth about that. Well, well yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I'm, I'm going to go back to King for a minute because you you know this uh, better than I do, because uh, of the, the the wonderful book you wrote in his last year. There were far more people walking behind that mule drawn casket um, than there were on April the third, nineteen sixty eight. Um, largely because King told the truth about Vietnam. We have never been a country, in my view, that's rewarded truth tellers. Now, nah, but you you are, as we say in, in, in the black church, that, that'll preach. Uh, <laughs> we have never in the country, ever uh, in the world, frankly, never really rewarded truth tellers. And we can start with that first century Palestinian Jew named Jesus, um, and go down the list. And what happened, frankly, is uh, uh, is uh, is uh, a cautionary tale. What for what happens to anybody uh, in this country uh, who, who dares to tell some uncomfortable truths? Um, the more truth you tell, the more you're gonna get crucified. Um, and you're right. We're a country that has never really rewarded truth tellers. So what happens is. That's how you get neoliberalism, right? Um, because you only want to tell uh, the truths that don't get them, don't put them rather in harm's way. Um, but poverty is threatening our democracy. Um, global warming and climate change that Americans uh, want to deny the science on. Um, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poor. And there's still an embrace of Wall Street. Uh, capitalism is failing us. Nobody wants to call out our capitalist systems and structures uh, and talk about whether or not there's a better way. Um, I mean, e every day you have politicians on the left and on the right who lie to the American people through their teeth. The lies are just, um, are just these lies are prodigious. Uh, and, uh, and, and, they're, uh, they're voluminous. 
so it's it's hard to to see how you get at the truth. Lie to us every single day and get away with it, and that's on the left and the right. And again, to your point, we're just a country that doesn't reward telling the truth. And yet, I believe that you know, at our best, what we ought to be about is seeking the truth and speaking the truth. Somebody has to be willing to say what they see, uh, and there just aren't enough people who are willing to do that. Uh, and they don't do it because they know that that's how you get taken out. That's how you get denied opportunity. Uh, and if you're black, that's how you get um, demonized and, and, and destroyed and decimated. So people are scared. To, people are scared to tell the truth. Uh, there's, there's, there's truth out there that is being told just at a level where all the rest of us can hear it and wrestle with, it, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, no, no. I, I was struck um, that at the la last Republican debate, um, Vivek Ramaswamy was viewed by a plurality of having won the debate. And this is someone who said that more people die from global warming policies than die from global warming. And this guy was taken seriously, at least in that particular forum. So, I mean, not that I'm picking on Republicans right now, but that, that just seems to be endemic of, of where we are. There, there, there's no benefit if you have political ambition in, in telling the truth. We have to always make sure we're in the right frame. The frame that we're in right now is a frame where the truth is what each of us determines it to be. Uh, the data doesn't matter. Science doesn't matter. The facts doesn't matter. Uh, don't matter. The trends don't matter. The realities that we are doing every day. Um, there is no um, there is no objective. You recall that line, alternative facts. There's the truth and there's a lie. And I'm not one who suggests that I have a monopoly on the truth. I tend to believe, Byron, that there is the truth and there is the way to the truth. You have to be humble enough to acknowledge and to accept that you may be uh, in the know about certain truths, but uh, you don't have a command of all the truth. And so I'm humble enough to, to recognize that my role is to, again, say what I see, to share those truths that I know. But to be, again, um, be, to be uh, lowly enough to recognize that not everybody understands or sees all the truths that I've been exposed to and to give them time uh, to come to knowledge truths that I know. But again, uh, every one of us has a responsibility to not abrogate the telling of the truths that we know, certainly in these political spaces that we that we occupy. Hmm. Uh, I, I know that um, we share reverence uh, for, for Dr. King, so that's why I love bringing up these historical tidbits with you about Dr. King. But earlier you talked about, you know, his famously talking about the triple evils, uh, racism, militarism, and poverty. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's also fair that there was a unique coalition of black and white in opposition when King took those types of positions. we Now I look back, and you sort of alluded to it earlier, we have a more muscular version uh, of what King warned. I would argue he undersold it. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't debate you on that. I wouldn't debate you. He was fervent. Um, he was fervent about it. Um, but there's no doubt about the fact that it's it's been on that those realities Racism, poverty, militarism have been on steroids since his death. 
they've grown exponentially worse. Um, I don't know that he understood it because he was very fervent, in it, but all those issues have gotten worse. Um, and that's why you know I regard King as as a prophet. Uh, he was not a politician. He wasn't trying to be president. He really, in fact, was a truth teller. Um, but he was prophetic, uh, and so whether he understood it or not, I don't know. Uh, and I believe that the future of democracy is inextricably linked to how seriously we take his legacy. We will never get to where we need to be unless we take seriously the legacy of Dr. King. I regard that legacy as justice for all, service to others, and love that liberates people. Justice for all, service to others, and a love that liberates people. And if we don't ever take seriously his legacy and wrestle with that triple threat and the additional items that are now on that list, like global warming, climate change, et cetera, et cetera, uh, then this democracy is doomed. My, my read of history suggested me um, our continued preaching of American exceptionalism, notwithstanding, my read of history uh, suggests to me that no empire in the history of the world has ever avoided successfully its reckoning. Every empire has a reckoning. Every empire has a comeuppance. Every empire falters and most at some point fail. Uh, and I don't know if it's our arrogance or our hubris, but there's something about the way we show up in the world as Americans that doesn't even allow us to wrestle with how close to the edge, how close to the precipice of failure we really are. And that's a dangerous thing. Hmm. Not long ago, uh, I was watching uh, Oxford Union debates because I'm just weird like that. And I have nothing better to do with my time. They're on, they're on YouTube. And the topic was the Obama administration. And uh, this uh, rather erudite young man walked up to the stage neatly uh, attired in a tuxedo. And he begins quoting Martin Luther King. He says, cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asked the question, is it politic? Vanity asked the question, is it popular? But conscience asked the question, is it right? Now, since that erudite young man happens to be none other than yourself, I would like for you to take a moment um, to share the differences you had with the Obama administration, because it sort of, in my view, morphed in the barbershop talk. And, you know, once it gets into the barbershop, facts become less important. So, Tavis Smiley, you have the floor, sir. I'll, I'll respond in very simple and straightforward terms. Here's, here's the straightforward response. Um, it is impossible to not have a critique, some critique, of the head of the American empire if you're black. Full stop, hard stop, period. It is impossible to not have a critique of the leader, the head of the American empire if you happen to be African-American. Now, I think it's impossible to not have a critique if you're a fellow citizen, period. But if you're black, if you are black, there is no way, I don't care who he or she is, if this person, if person X, we're talking in this instance about Barack Hussein Obama, it could be anybody black. But if person X 
if black person X is the head of the American empire, you cannot not have a critique of that person. If for no other reason than because he or she runs the American empire. And if you understand what the American empire is, if you want to grade the head of the American empire on a thinking scorecard, which I did at a debate at Oxford, um, which is one of the greatest invitations I've ever received in my life. Um, I thought the invitation initially was a joke that I was being invited to speak at the Oxford Union where so many great world figures have spoken from Castro to uh, Benazir Bhutto to Nelson Mandela and the list goes on and on and on of all of these great world figures who've spoken, Mal Malcolm X, Dr. King, who've spoken at the Oxford Union, you walk in the building, there are all these great photos around the walls of these great world figures who've spoken, at the, spoken and debated at the Oxford Union. I thought the invitation was a joke. It wasn't. I went to the Oxford Union, Byron, and I wrestled with this same question at the Oxford Union. And what I told them in that room that was jam-packed with people um, about Obama and the Obama era was that I graded Obama, and for that matter, any other presidency, on what I call a Kingian scorecard, which you and, I, you and I have been talking about for the last 30 minutes or so, 40 minutes. Racism, poverty, and militarism. And I unpacked all three of those uh, threats uh, that King talked about. And I, I implored the audience at the Oxford Union to grade Obama as I did on that Kingian scorecard. How did he do on militarism? What did he accomplish on poverty? And what did he do on racism? The most intractable issue facing our democracy. I laid that out and they listened attentively to that presentation. So my answer to you is the same answer I gave to the Oxford Union. I grade Barack Obama on a Kingian scorecard, racism, poverty, and militarism. Uh, I'll let your readers uh, grade him for themselves on those three issues. I don't grade on a curve, um, uh, but those are the those are the issues on which I grade any president, including Barack Obama, number one. Number two, you cannot be black in America and not have a critique of anybody, black, white, red, brown, yellow, or polka dot. If they are the head of the American empire, you cannot not have a critique of them if you understand who and what the empire in this country is all about. You can't not have a critique if said person is running the American empire. So those persons who thought he walked on water like Jesus, then I, I just don't understand that. Um, I loved him then, I love him now. Uh, and my frame for all, all eight of his years as president, my frame um, was the same. I did not change, I didn't move out of my frame. Respect, protect, correct. I respect the president, I protect the president, and I will correct the president when he's wrong. Um, so I respected Barack Obama then. I tell, I tell folk all the time, if you think I voted for Mitt Romney and Sarah Palin, I mean, uh, John McCain and Sarah Palin, Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan over Barack Obama and Joe Biden, if you think I did that, put down the crack pipe. I voted for Barack Obama twice, just like all the rest of y'all Negroes. I voted for him twice. I respected the best leader um, on the ballot in both of those elections. Secondly, always protected him. Nobody gave me any credit or patted me on the back or sent me nice letters or flowers when I was on 
Fox News arguing with Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Bill O'Reilly and Megyn Kelly defending, protecting Barack Obama on all the Sunday morning shows, Meet the Press, Face the Nation this week, taking on white conservatives, debating and defending Barack Obama, protecting him. I got no love for that. But when I corrected him, some Negroes got upset. Um, so I'm a big boy. I can handle it. But that's the frame I was in then. That's the frame I'm in now. Respect, protect, correct. But I invite all your readers to grade that eight-year administration on that same scorecard, racism, poverty, and militarism, and tell me what kind of score you give um, that administration over the eight-year period. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I loved him then. I love him now. But if you're the head of the American empire, you're going to get a critique from me, period, hard stop. Well, I, want, I want to thank you for that. Uh, last question before I let you go. Um, I want to talk about you for just a moment, just your career, um, an amazing career from for, for Argentina. Uh, when you look at your career as a broadcast journalist, and, and you, you mentioned your origins earlier, um, was there a moment for you, whether you were interviewing someone or uh, writing a book or giving a presentation, when you said to yourself, look at this little boy from Mississippi? The answer to your question, it's a, it's a powerful question and a great question on which to close. I, um, the answer is, answer is I do that almost every day. Almost every day um, I have that feeling. Um, every day on my radio program, I welcome people to the show. Yeah, good to have you on. How are you today? They'll say, I'm fine. Good to be on your program, Tavis. And they'll say, how are you today? And I respond to everybody the same way. Uh, I always say that if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. If I complained, I would be an ingrate. And I never want to be an ingrate. I am so deeply grateful. I am thankful. I am humbled every day that I get a chance to do what I do. Um, certainly after the drama that I endured uh, on this side of the PB on this side of PBS, um, being able to to however you want to put it, get back, bounce back, come back. I've seen all of in some. Uh, but to be able to do what I do every day, um, to own and operate a black owned talk station, my daily program syndicated nationally, um, once again back at national syndication. And all the things that I get a chance to do philanthropically, um, politically, culturally, socially, um, I am grateful every single day for um, the audience that still appreciates, they're willing to have their assumptions reexamined. Uh, but I am grateful for the millions of Americans who've listened to me and read my books. And so every day um, I am grateful for the platforms, uh, for the friendships, for the support, for the listeners, for the viewers, for the readers. Um, I've got nothing to complain about. And so I just try to stay in a space of grace. I try to keep an attitude of gratitude. Uh, and, um, you know, I wake up every day trying to do my part. That's my story, Byron. That's my story. And I'm, I am. Thank you. I would just say that you should take some advice from this guy that I know wrote a book several years ago. I had the honor of interviewing for his book. And he talked throughout that book about failing up. So you just take that brother's advice. I think you'll be all right. <laughs> That's what I'm doing now. I'm just failing my way up. And I love you, Byron. Thank you, sir. All right. You have a great day, Tavis. Thank you for joining me again on the Public Rally, sir. It's my great honor. Stay tuned as I speak with author Todd Brewster on the Public Morality. <laughs> 